This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Uh, welcome to the Circuit of Success. So you can tell I'm me what you have, Gilland. I can tell you what's going on. I can tell you what your future is. And we've got Brian Estes on. But like the, I always show, say, Brian, life is ten percent what I'm happens to you. It's ninety percent what you do about it. It's crazy times. The it? people who are most effective in the workplace is, believe that their future is yeah, going to be bigger than their past. When people don't believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past, they begin to disengage. You're listening to the Circuit of Success, a podcast. So you're dedicated to helping Florida. you achieve the success in every facet there. of life. Only on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. That's not going on in now, Orlando, is it? Your home, I think it's Red Gilliland. Very nice. Very nice. Got the short sleeve shirt on. There you go. Well, you are the CEO and CIO of uh, Off the Chain Capital, which is a, uh, a great company that we'll talk about uh, along this uh, podcast here today. But we're going to talk a lot about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and all those things. And obviously, you'd have to probably be living in a cave without technology to have not at least heard of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and and the, the blockchain and all those things. But today, if you could maybe give us a little background of kind of what's made you the man you are today, but also how you got into this specialty uh, of what you do now. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you mentioned I you know lived in O'Fallon. So I moved there when I was in sixth grade. My dad was at Scott Air Force Base. Yeah. Um, so from sixth grade to high school, graduated from O'Fallon High School in 86. Um, got a um, scholarship to play wheelchair basketball at University of Illinois. Um, so I went to University of Illinois four years there, um, majored in economics and finance. Um, I did my study abroad at Cambridge University and London School of Economics um, in 1988. Um, and then I graduated in 1990 and started off as a stockbroker with a company called A.G. Edwards and Sons yeah. in St. Louis. Um, so retail stockbroker, um, did that for a couple of years, and then moved over to the institutional side. And um, I was an institutional equity broker for 14 years with A.G. Edwards, um, left there in 04, um, uh, met Brad and uh, around that time, um, I decided to leave A.G. Edwards and do my own thing. And so I took my top 100 clients with me um, and most of my assets were like endowments and foundations I was managing money for, um, did that for another 10 years. And then in 2014, I learned about this weird thing called Bitcoin and mm-hmm. I, coming from traditional finance, I, I thought it was a total scam when I first learned about it. I saw Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss on CNBC talking about it when it was hundred dollars per Bitcoin. So um, yeah, Cameron and Tyler were on CNBC, Bitcoin is a hundred. You know, I, I thought it was a scam, like some sort of pump and dump scheme. And, but I, I just, I found a little, you know, a, a little curiosity around it and, so I put it on my watch list and I watched it go from hundred dollars to 400 to 800 to 1200. And then it crashed from 1200 down to around 350 when the largest custodian of Bitcoin got hacked in 2014 and someone stole like 850,000 Bitcoin. And um, so when, after it crashed, I've always been a value investor and I decided to take a look and see what this was about and, so see if the suckers got washed out and there might be some value opportunity there. And, um, and after I read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, which is the nine page um, origin of the, the Bitcoin thesis, like I, I understood what this was. I understood that we're going to rebuild our entire financial system on blockchain technology. And um, I allowed, you know, I talked my wife into allowing me to sell my practice and I exited the industry and um, started building blockchain companies back in 2014 and 15. So that, that's kind of how I got started. So let's talk about that if you can. Just high level, what is cryptocurrency? And then what is the blockchain? Just start at the very, very beginning if you can. Okay. So they're the same. Um, so, um, so when people say like Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, um, it's cryptographic software. So that, the first part of that is right, but it's not currency. Um, so, you know, Bitcoin is more, you know, the IRS says it's property. So, you know, so you can't really, you know, if you have a property, it's hard to spend. You know, you can't go to Starbucks and spend your house or your land right. or your Apple stock, right? 
So the IRS says Bitcoin's property. So whenever you have a transaction in Bitcoin, you have to fill out a Schedule D and you know file your taxes with that transaction on it. So it prohibits, in the United States, it's prohibitive to use Bitcoin as currency. Um, if you go outside the US into Europe and most of Asia, Bitcoin is currency. You know, it's not classified as property. So a lot of people use it as currency outside the US. Um, but in the US, it's property. And um, so, you know, we really don't use it as currency. Um, you know, other agencies call it something different too, like the CFTC calls it a commodity. FinCEN's, the Financial Enforcement you know, Crime Network, calls it currency. Um, or they said it acts like currency. They actually don't, they're, they're, it's kind of funny. They, they don't say it's currency. They said it acts like currency. Um, so they're very like, you know, like getting close to the line there of calling it currency. And, um, you know, different government agencies call it different things. So, so anyways, back to your question, um, difference between cryptocurrency and blockchain. Um, you know, they're basically the same thing. Blockchain is the technology that powers these networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum and, you know, the 7,000 other, you know, I, I call them digital assets that are out there. Um, I think that's a better way to describe them um, rather than cryptocurrency. So totally. blockchain is the technology powering um, the software and, and what that software creates are digital assets like Bitcoin and the other 7,000 other digital assets that are out there. So Brian, I've heard you describe Bitcoin as a network. Can you describe that and how you think about that? I know there are different networks that we use every day, like you know the internet's a network, our, mm -hmm. our email systems are network um, systems. So domain names, I know I've heard you talk about that in the past, how there are a limited number of domain names. And so that's somewhat of a network and really like Facebook's a network. Yeah. It, it has no value if nobody else uses it, but mm -hmm. if everybody uses Facebook, now it has value. So Right. Can you kind of explain your theory there with Bitcoin and how how that's a network and the network effect and and, and how you view that long term? Yeah. Um, so let's go back like 10,000 years. Like one of the first networks that we used was like gold and silver. So the world, you know, we as humans decided collectively um, that we'll use gold and silver as our money. And we, we did that for like 10,000 years. And so that was a you know, we you know, that was a network we we all agreed that you know gold and silver we, that was interchangeable with goods. And then when technology came around, like you mentioned, like the internet, um, you know, we can look at what's called HTTP. So when you go on the internet and you see your URL up there, you see HTTP. That what that is? That's hypertext transfer protocol. That that's the internet. That's the World Wide Web. When you send an email, you're using what's called SMTP. Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. Both of those are open source internet protocol software. So you know, it's, you know, it's open source, anybody could develop on it and it's internet protocol software so that you could do peer-to-peer -peer transactions or you know, I can go to your website without permission. I don't need someone to say, it's okay to go to your website. I can just go to your website. And so, but with money, um, when we built the internet 30 years ago, we couldn't figure out how to create the software to send our money through the internet. And so what happened was that 30 years ago, we had, we, we, we built the transfer, the money transfer system on the internet. We built it on top of the banking and credit card system, but it wasn't supposed to be like that. The internet's supposed to be permissionless. Like I could just send you money if I want to, but it's not, you know, if I want to send you money, you know, before blockchain was invented, I had to go through PayPal, Venmo, Visa, MasterCard, Bank of America, uh, you know, some sort of clearing company to clear that transaction for us. And so I need permission. I need permission to have that bank account. I need permission to have a PayPal account. Um, and so, but it's not supposed to be like that. You know, when we send data through the internet, when I go to your website, you know, it should be peer to peer without permission. And so no one could figure out how to create that software until 2009. And that's when blockchain or Bitcoin, the first, you know, the first blockchain was Bitcoin. That's when that technology was given to the world. Some anonymous person 
figured out that software and posted it on the internet and said, here's the solution everybody's been looking for. And so that's how Bitcoin started. It started organically. There was no venture capital behind it, starting it. It wasn't started by a foundation or like a, you know, some sort of, you know, startup company like IPO. It just grew organic. It was software. It's open source internet protocol software. That's what Bitcoin is. Um, it's, you know, anyone who could develop on it and it's free to use. And, you know, that's, you know, so it's a network. It's just like the internet. It's just like email. Um, domain names have value because there's a scarce number of domain names on the internet. And so as more and more people use the internet, those scarce domain names become more valuable. And that's how you could think about Bitcoin. There, there's only 21 million Bitcoin that could ever be created. There's about 200 million people using it today. But in about 10 years, there's going to be, you know, four to six billion people using it. And when more people use this network, this software, this open source internet protocol software, as more and more people use it, it becomes more valuable. And that's how you measure the values, what's called Metcalfe's law or Metcalfe's law is the way you value networks. And so the, does that answer your question? Is that what? Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, one of the things Brett and I were talking about before we got on the podcast was your use of the S-curve analysis. And so does that network effect play into that S-curve analysis where really I think Bitcoin's adoption is at 20, 25% today. I'm not sure where it stands, mm -hmm. but can you explain to our listeners the S-curve adoption and how you mm -hmm. use that? Because I think that's what you're using. When I met you in 2004, you were heavily invested in the internet stocks, eBay, Yahoo, uh, I don't know if Facebook was around yet, Amazon. And so, you know, you were using, I think that same S-curve adoption uh, thesis to invest in those early stage companies, knowing that they were probably going to have rapid adoption and obviously have higher, higher uh, valuations. So I went back and looked, I did, I couldn't believe it had been 2004 since we worked <laughs> together. It, time flies, but Amazon was trading at 50 bucks a share back then. And now it's at 3000. So you've been very early to identify some of these trends. And, you know, hopefully Bitcoin is obviously the next one that's still not done growing. Um, but yeah, the S-curve adoption, if you could just explain that real quickly so so the folks that don't know about it could learn more. Yeah, so I learned this when I was at Cambridge University, like back in 88, we were studying um, like history of stock market bubbles. Um, so Sir Isaac Newton was a professor at Cambridge um, you know, the guy who invented, you know, discovered gravity. Yeah. Um, he also managed the Cambridge Endowment back in the 1700s too. And so um, anyways, during this class, we learned about S-curve. So what an S-curve is, it's the way you measure um, the adoption of new technologies. And so I've been using this, like, like you said, throughout my whole career. So even before we met, I was using it in the early 1990s to identify computer stocks, like computer companies. Um, so when I graduated from college in 1990, only 10% of U.S. households had a personal computer. And by 2000, 10 years later, it was 90%. Um, but if you look at when the PC was invented, it was invented like 1977 by Apple, but it was really like 1980 before like one-tenth of 1% 1 of U.S. households had a computer. So it took 10 years from 1980 to 1990 to go from 0% adoption to 10% adoption. But then it only took 10 more years to go from 10% to 90% adoption. So that's what S-curve is. You're looking for that, that apex of when it goes from 10% to 90%. And so if we look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin was invented in 2009. By 2019, 10% of US household had owned Bitcoin. In 2020, the comptroller of the U.S. currency, Brian Brooks, said it was 15%. Um, last year, we did a study, um, or we didn't do it. There was a study released of 30,330 households. And that study showed that 25% of U.S. households owned Bitcoin last year. And if you project this out, it shows that by 2029, so in seven more years, 90% of U.S. households will own Bitcoin or have exposure to blockchain, you know, digital currency, you know, these types of digital assets. And so we have seven years of this mega trend, 
mass adoption left. And it's still early. A lot of people keep thinking, like, you know, I missed it. Bitcoin went from 100 to 40,000. I missed it. You haven't missed it. Um, you know, our models, we have models that help us figure out what Bitcoin's worth in the future. Our models are showing that Bitcoin's going to be worth somewhere between $10 million of Bitcoin and $18 million of Bitcoin <laughs> in year 2029 to year 2030. And these models are 95 to 99% correlated to the historical price of Bitcoin over the past 12 years. These aren't like models like we're pulling out of our butt. I mean, these are highly correlated models that have you know, been you know, correct over the past 12 years. And, and, you know, and the models are telling us it's gonna be worth a lot more in the future. You know, the, the, the biggest question is like, you know, I, I don't think the question is like, will Bitcoin be $10 million? That, you know, the models say it's gonna be worth 10 million. The, the biggest question is, what will $10 million buy you in seven years? You know, well, you know, like a house that's in O'Fallon today that costs like 350,000, will that be worth $3.5 million in seven years or $35 million? Like that, that's the biggest question. What, what will $10 million buy you? Um, and that's what Bitcoin's use case is. It's, it's a store of value to protect your portfolio against the government debasing the currency. And the government's actively debasing the currency. They, the Federal Reserve issued out 40% more US dollars over the past two years than it had before. And so your, our, the value of our dollar went down by 40%. And so that's what's called inflation. You have, you have more dollars chasing same or fewer goods. So the price goes up. That's why your home price is going up. You know, if you ask yourself, like, did your home get 20% bigger or 40%, you know, if your home price went up 30%, let's say over the past couple of years, did your home get 30% bigger? Like, nope. did you, you know, did your lot get 30% bigger? You know, is your home providing 30% more utility than it did two years ago? And the answer is no. The reason it, it went up in value because it takes more depreciated dollars to buy that same asset. And that's why, you know, it looks like your home value went up, but it really didn't. A home is, you know, equal to a home. You know, what, what changed was the value of the dollar. And, and the only way to protect yourself is to own hard assets like that. You own real estate, rare, you know, rare art, um, and you own Bitcoin as a protection against that debasement of the currency. So walk us through if you can. Uh, so I love all that stuff. I appreciate you sharing that. But the, the head scratcher, I think, for a lot of people out there is, is this anonymous person, right, that created this and we're done at, at 21 million Bitcoin. You know, like, how, how do you like that? For me, it's even a head scratcher, right? Of like, how do you justify that? I mean, the dollar, yeah, you've got the Federal Reserve and whether people think about that. But, but how do you, what's your answer to that when you think about an anonymous person creating this? Yeah, so like I said, you know, the person that figured out this solution to what's called the double spin problem, which was a computer science pro you know, problem for 30 years, like people couldn't figure out how to send value through the internet without being able to copy and paste it and double spend it. Like, you know, if I, I, if I sent you Brett a dollar, I shouldn't be able to copy and paste that dollar and send it to Brad, right? That's double spending yep. the same That's dollar. Right. And so with data, it's fine. I could send you a Word document, I could copy and send it to Brad and it really doesn't matter, but we can't do that with money. So that was the computer science problem that was no one could figure out. So um, most people have heard of Elon Musk, you know, Elon <laughs> Musk and Peter Thiel and a, guy, and a guy named Luke Nozick. They started a company called PayPal back in 1998. PayPal's original mission in 1998 was to create Bitcoin. They wanted to create this software that allowed transfer of value through the internet, this currency that wasn't debased. And the governments and the banks couldn't debase the currency. They worked on that for about a year. They couldn't figure out how to do it either. And so they you know, switched PayPal's mission and they put it on the US dollar. And then I went to college with a guy named Mark Andreessen, 
back in you know the 80s. So so Mark, um, so Mark, when he graduated from U of I, I was two years older, but when he graduated, he took a piece of software that he developed as a grad student called Mosaic. And Mosaic is what he used to start Netscape. Netscape was the first internet browser uh, back in the early 90s. And so Mark and his team tried to develop that software that allowed the transfer of value through the internet. They couldn't figure it out either. And so, like I said, you know, what, what ended up happening was that we built the internet on top of the existing banking system and the existing credit card system. So it was built incorrectly. So whoever it was who figured out this solution and the person or the group of people, they go by the name Satoshi Nakamoto. You know, they figured out how to do this and they just gave it to us. You know, they didn't sell it to the world. They just said, here's the solution. We're giving the solution to the world. They went on the internet, they posted it on the internet for free and gave the solution to the world. And this was in 2009 when the financial system was about to collapse. And, and it, you know, what Bitcoin is, what this blockchain technology is, it's the peer-to-peer cashless payment system. And that's, you know, that's, that's all it is. It's just software. Are, just, are you like me? You just want to meet these people though? Like, I, I just don't understand in today's world how they, how they don't say like, Hey, I'm the one that did this. That, that was amazing. Yeah, well, if they that's did, the- then the government would go after them. Okay. So, yeah. you know, that's, okay. so if you look at previous attempts at creating an alternative money system, people who do that get arrested. So, you know, there's, you know, there's a, a whole history of people trying like e-gold and, other try, you know, ways yeah. to, you know, issue out currency. And so the government doesn't like that. And they go in and they crack down on these people. And those are centralized platforms. So Bitcoin cannot be stopped. It's a decentralized platform. All it is is software. It's software running computer code. Anybody could use it. And in the United States, computer code is protected language. The, and back in 1996, the Supreme Court decided that computer code is protected by the First Amendment of the United States on free speech. It, computer code is speech and it's protected speech. And so anyone could issue out computer code and the United States can't stop it. Like it's, it, you know, it's, you know, it's against the US Constitution to shut down Bitcoin. So, you know, so what they've been doing is trying to slow it down. So they tax it as property, which they're allowed to do. Um, they're, you know, they're on a massive misinformation campaign to brand it as something nefarious or something that's not environmentally friendly, which is all completely false. Um, and so they're trying to convince people not to use it. But as the world understands what this is, you know, more and more people are starting to use it as you know, basically insurance to protect them against the debasement of the currency. I think it was interesting. I think in the past few weeks, we've seen that ConocoPhillips is going to use some of their excess capacity to, uh, I guess, sell sell that capacity to miners, Bitcoin miners. And then Ameren, I think, is using some of their uh, coal mining capacity to mine Bitcoin. So you're starting to see some of these energy companies use excess capacity that would have gone to waste. Their energy would have you know, not been uh, efficiently transferred to the grid. They're using this to mine Bitcoin. And so, you know, you're seeing more and more companies develop environmentally friendly ways to mine Bitcoin, because really, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but the biggest cost to these mining companies is energy and in the cost of energy. So they'll go to the most efficient places in the world to mine Bitcoin. And so in that sense, they're trying to find more energy efficient ways to mine Bitcoin. So you know, I think there's a lot of uh, success and, and, you know, companies are, are really trying to find solar wind um, areas in Texas where that energy can be created, but it can't be transmitted across the world. So using Bitcoin mining in those areas is really kind of an efficient way to, to you know, mine this Bitcoin. You're 100% right. I mean, so it pushes like the Bitcoin mining industry. of the energy use comes from green or renewable energy sources. It's the most ESG friendly industry in the world. So when people say Bitcoin hurts the environment, they don't know what they're talking about. 
it's the it's the greenest energy you know in, in the world in industry in the world um just to drill down a little bit on your point that bitcoin mining tends to go towards the cheapest source of electricity that's why a lot of bitcoin miners used to be in china so china over the last 30 years built a lot of hydroelectric dams in remote areas and so you have all this electricity being generated from the dam but there's not enough population in these remote areas to use up that electricity and you can't transmit it more than 500 miles because you lose 60 percent of the of the electricity during the transmission and so it's stranded electricity just sitting there being unused and so the you know the bitcoin mining industry went to these hydroelectric plants in remote china and said hey we'll pay you one cent per kilowatt hour and that's better than zero letting it go to waste so they were getting very very cheap electricity so what ended up happening is that over 50 percent of the bitcoin mining was being done in china until last year and then china said we're kicking all the miners out and all those miners had moved you know now have moved out of china and less than one percent of bitcoins being mined in china today um, and a lot of that came to the U.S. The U.S. is the largest um, Bitcoin mining country in the world today at 35%. So 35% of the creation of Bitcoin or the clearing of transactions. So I just want to make sure what Bitcoin, people understand what Bitcoin mining is. If you're a miner, what you're doing is you're volunteering to go buy computer equipment, pay the electrical cost to clear transactions on the Bitcoin network. You do it for free. And what you're, the reason you're doing that is because the Bitcoin network spits off 900 Bitcoin a day, you know, at a rate of six and a quarter Bitcoin every 10 minutes. So that's like $36 million worth of Bitcoin that's being rewarded out to the people clearing those transactions. And if you're clearing those transactions, you participate in that reward system. So you could earn Bitcoin by clearing these transactions. And so that's all a Bitcoin miner is. And, you know, a third of that today is in the United States. So looking at that, it's like a, a miner back in the day going mining for gold, right? They, they got a job, they got paid to go do it. Now these people are volunteering to do it. But at the, on the backside, they're getting rewards by actually having their own Bitcoin shaved off, if you will, looking at it like gold, right? Shaved off. I get to keep some, the rest goes out into the world. No, no, it's not shaved off. It's newly created Bitcoin. So the way the software works is that let's go back to 2009 when Bitcoin first started. So the Genesis block, you know, before there was any Bitcoin out there, you know, it issued out 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And so for the first, and it's, it's measured by the number of blocks. So it's the, you know, every 210,000 blocks of data or Bitcoin that gets generated, um, then it gets cut in half. So for the first 210,000 blocks, and it takes about 10 minutes to create a block. So 210,000 times 10 minutes is about four years. So approximately every four years, the number, the reward gets cut in half. So for the first, you know, 210,000 blocks, it was 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And then in 2012, that got cut to 25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And then in 2016, it got cut in half again, to um, 12 and a half Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And then in May of 2020, it got cut in half to six and a quarter Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And then in 2024, it's going to get cut in half again to three and an eighth Bitcoin every 10 minutes. So those are halvings. There's going to be the code, the computer software says that there's going to be 32 halvings during the life cycle of Bitcoin. We've had three halvings. And so you have 29 more to go. It's gonna take 120 years to, you know, to do the next 29 halvings. And so there's been 19 million of the 21 million maximum Bitcoin that have already been issued out. So 90% of all the Bitcoin that can be created has already been created. And it's going to take 120 years to create that last 10%. And so, you know, so the, I, in my opinion, there's going to be a scramble because, you know, people are realize that this is the new monetary layer of the world and that there's only 2 million more Bitcoin that's going to be rewarded out. We better buy up some of the Bitcoin that's already been issued out 
And then that's what caused the price to go up. So Brian, what do you think is the biggest risk to Bitcoin? So, you know, we, we talked about China regulating miners. Um, if it becomes seen as a currency, as a world currency, I'm sure you're going to see some countries that don't like that competition with their local currency. So what, in your opinion, what is the biggest risk for this not to play out the way you're, you're thinking it's going to play out? Is it uh, regulation by governments? Is it a different cryptocurrency that people think is better than Bitcoin, a different software? What do you think could derail kind of your thought process for Bitcoin? Yeah, let's talk about like what you just brought up. Um, Could something replace Bitcoin? Um, So there's two types of blockchains that are out there. There's proof of work blockchains like Bitcoin and other proof of work blockchains are like all the hard forks that came off Bitcoin, like Bitcoin SV, Bitcoin Diamond, Bitcoin Gold. These are competitors against Bitcoin. They, someone said, you know, thought I could create a better version of Bitcoin by increasing the block size, make it faster. Um, but those have pretty much failed. Um, you know, they're better technology, but nobody's using them. And then there's other proof of work blockchains like, um, you know, Litecoin, um, Monero, Zcash, Dogecoin. A lot of people own Dogecoin. Um, but those, so those are proof of work blockchains. If you add up the value of all the proof of work blockchains, like I just mentioned, 92% of the value of all the proof of work blockchains is in Bitcoin. So the world has already decided that Bitcoin's the winner for proof of work or store of value on the internet. So, you know, that's already been decided. There, there's no more question that, you know, you know, you're not, you know, Bitcoin won't lose 92% of its dominance. You know, in fact, its dominance keeps increasing and eventually it'll be 99% of proof of work blockchains will be, you know, in Bitcoin, you know, the value will be in Bitcoin. So all the other blockchains that are out there are called proof of stake blockchains. So that's like Ethereum 2.0, Solana, EOS, Cardano, those are basically operating systems using blockchain technology. And so those operating systems, they're duking it out. They're fighting it out, trying to figure out who's, you know, which one's best. And it's too early to know. There are 7,000 of those out there. And we just don't know which one's going to be the winner yet. Um, there'll be a shakeout phase when, you know, in the next few years. And 99.9% of those are going to zero. And there'll be a handful that will be left and we'll have Bitcoin and we'll have a handful of dominant blockchain operating systems. And so, so to answer your question, you know, Bitcoin already won its category. Um, it can't be replaced. Um, and then, but all the other ones are still fighting it out. Um, another threat to Bitcoin could be like, just say the U S government says, you know, we don't want Bitcoin in the United States anymore. Um, there's a few things preventing that from happening. One is the Supreme Court. You know, it's already decided that Bitcoin's code and it's protected speech. Um, another thing is that um, there are 89 million millennials in the United States. So these are people who are 35 or younger. It's a huge voting block. 70% of them own Bitcoin. So if you're a politician and you're going to go against the millennials, you know, you should probably good luck. Really, yeah, good luck with that, right? It's the new voting block. Um, you know, the baby boomers, which was the previous largest generation, they're 47 million strong. So, and, and they're dying off, you know, you know, the new voting block are the millennials. Um, so, you know, so the politicians won't want to go, go against them. And so the politicians are recognizing that, you know, blockchain is a voting you know, way to get votes. And so they're, they're not going against it. Um, but if the U.S. government says, you know, hey, you know, we want to eliminate the use of Bitcoin. Um, the one thing they could do is just tax it at 100 percent. You know, right now it's taxes capital gains, just like a stock is. But if they want to take all the economic incentive out of the system to use this, they would tax it at 100 percent. And then no one would want to use it because there's no gain in it for them. The reason the government won't do that is because the blockchain assets are worth about $3 trillion today. 
and they have a cost basis of a couple hundred billion. So there's like, you know, $2.8 billion worth of unrealized capital, or excuse me, $2.8 trillion worth of unrealized capital gains that are out there. And, you know, as people, you know, shift the money around, sell it, use it, spend it, um, it's going to trigger some of those capital gains. And so there's hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of future tax revenue that could flow to the U.S. government by letting the system flourish. And so the U.S. government has no incentive to destroy that. So, so, I, so I, I don't really see any huge risk to, to Bitcoin and, and to blockchain in the United States. You know, <clears throat> Brett and I have discussions as financial advisors with baby boomers. And so it's kind of funny to try to explain Bitcoin yeah. to them and, and have them just get this puzzled look on their face. Like, okay, so it's, it's money that's mined in cyberspace. We don't know who created it and all these things that, that they come up with. And so we have to try to explain, you know, the things you're explaining to us in, in layman's terms. So it's, uh, it's always challenging and fun to do that. One of the things that I think I've had the most pushback on was that this can get hacked and people can just take your Bitcoin. Yep. And so I think you were, Brian, alluding to the Mount Gox hack years ago that kind of happened and, and you were able to get some Bitcoin cheaper. Um, I think there was a story last week about some folks that scammed some people out of millions of, of dollars of Bitcoin. But can you kind of walk us through that? Because it seems to me that those hacks, for the most part these days, are people being careless with passwords. They're clicking on links they shouldn't click on, they're being careless with their security. It's not necessarily the hacking of a custodian or um, where the Bitcoin is stored. So can you kind of walk us through that and, and maybe give our listeners a little peace of mind that the system itself is not being hacked. It's another layer that's being um, hacked. Right. So from day one, when the Bitcoin blockchain started, it's been up and running 99.99% of the time. So it's, you know, it's more reliable than the Fed wire system. Okay. Um, and the, the blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain network has never been hacked. Okay. So what gets hacked are the custodians, people that custody Bitcoin. So it, if you think about it, it's like the bank got robbed, um, you know, but you know, the, the, but the federal reserve still has the printing press. So, you know, so, you know, exchanges, um, custodians of Bitcoin, if you're self-custodying your own Bitcoin, you know, you could, you know, you know, mismanage it and, you know, like lose it. Um, but, you know, the Bitcoin network itself has never been hacked. And the reason is that it's protected using um, cryptographic software. So to be specific, it's using SHA-256 cryptography. This is military grade cryptography and no one, it's non-hackable. You know, no, if, someone's, if someone's able to hack that, there's almost a trillion dollars worth of value in Bitcoin that people could steal. And, and the fact that no one could steal it is proof that it's not hackable. Um, and if anyone ever comes close to breaking the cryptographic codes that protects the network, then the developers will just notch up the cryptography from SHA-256 to SHA-512. And they'll, then they'll notch it up to SHA-1024. And you keep increasing the difficulty or the cryptography to such a point that there's not enough electricity in the world to break the code. <laughs> and if you turn it up high enough, there's not enough electrons in the universe to break the code. And so it's just, it's unhackable, it's unbreakable. And people say that, you know, there'll be, you know, you know, quantum computers or some other computing network out there that could break the code. And if they could break it, they would have already broken it. And the, you know, the fact that it hasn't been broken is proof that they can't break it. And so, and if they ever come close to breaking that cryptography code, they'll just keep notching up the, the, you know, the cryptographic software to make it more and more secure. I think I heard Michael Saylor, who's the CEO of MicroStrategy, who's invested his corporate cash, much of it in Bitcoin. But he, I think he said that it would take three to four years to possibly hack and it would cost 
billions of dollars to do that. And so he said, why wouldn't you, if you're going to spend three or four years and billions of dollars to hack to, to get into Bitcoin, why not just buy Bitcoin, take your three or $4 billion and buy Bitcoin today. So, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's a question that I know folks yeah, have asked sure. me, you know, just the security of it. Um, yeah. So, so thanks yeah, for. So let, let's talk about MicroStrategy for a little bit, Michael Saylor. So um, I, I know Michael, I was just at his house like last month for dinner um, you know, it was just me, him and a couple other friends. And, um, you know, he's a great guy, super smart, MIT grad. He was one of those guys back in the early nineties that was buying up domain names. He bought up Mike.com, Michael.com, hope.com, uh, wish.com, voice.com, like all these easy, you know, domain names. He bought voice.com for like $25 back in the early nineties. He sold it about six months ago for $30 million. Okay. Yeah. You ask him like, why, why would that domain name go from $25 to 30 million? It's because there were only a couple hundred million people using the internet 30 years ago. Now there's billions of people. So it's worth more. That's why Bitcoin will be worth more in the future. You know, there's like 200 million people using Bitcoin today in the future. There's going to be billions of people using this and Bitcoin's (laughs) going to be worth more in the future. Um, and so what Michael did, he had that experience. He was like, well, I know how digital assets appreciate over time that are scarce resources on the internet. When he learned about Bitcoin, you know, like it was just been 18 months ago. Um, he decided to take the $500 million of cash on his company's balance sheet and invest that in Bitcoin. And then he went out and issued a prefer a convertible preferred and bought like a billion dollars more. And then he bought another billion dollars. He's bought like $3 billion worth of Bitcoin on his company. When he started doing this, the total market cap of his company was $1 billion. And now his market cap about 18 months later is worth about $7 billion. So, you know, he, you know, he turned a billion into seven in less than a year by buying Bitcoin on his balance sheet. Currently today, they own about 125,000 Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And, and, you know, and what they're going to do with that, eventually he's talked about this on his calls. So this isn't like inside information or anything, but on his calls, he's talked about how they're looking into loaning or leveraging that Bitcoin up. And so his operating company today generates about $100 million worth of free cash flow. If they loan that Bitcoin out, they could generate another $300 million worth of free cash flow. So all of a sudden, this company, instead of generating $100 million, is generating $400 million of free cash flow. And what's he going to do with that? Well, he could buy back his own stock. He could buy more Bitcoin with it. He could issue out more convertibles and buy even more Bitcoin. He's a smart guy. I've probably got about a thousand hours myself of just research and listening in regards to Bitcoin. And I'd say Michael Saylor has probably been the person I've listened to the most. So he'll do some podcasts or talks where he speaks for three hours. And and I don't know how he even knows some of the things he knows (laughs) about ancient Roman history and the history (laughs) of money and ports and things. He he just is a, I I don't know how he, you know, memorizes all these facts and details, but he's amazing to listen to. And I, you know, he's been one that I've leaned on for information and just following his, his uh, strategy with, with MicroStrategy. I think he said that he, he was into the internet stocks very early. And I think he even wrote a book that, that didn't sell very well. And so he said this time when he found Bitcoin, he wanted to share it with more people, his employees right, right. and with, you know, and really get the word out. So I think, you know, he's been able to identify some of these trends too. Yeah. And he's, he's all in on it. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. What, what's dinner like over there? Let, let's talk about that. I mean, we're, we're hanging out. Maybe that's maybe we'll do that this Friday, Brad. We'll hang out with all of our billionaire friends. I'm supposed and... to go to Michael's house on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, what's yeah, dinner yeah. like yeah, over so, there, man? Yeah, so he has a home in Miami. I think built 1924. You know, very unique house. It's pretty much original. Um, you know, he has a 100-foot yacht parked in the backyard. So it's like, it's a little crazy. And a little different than O'Fallon, Illinois. Yeah, a little out. bit. Yeah. yeah but <laughs> well, he's a super nice of- guy. Very generous with his time. Um, you know, like Brad said, you know, one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, 
and he, you know, he experienced this over the last 30 years. He experienced how digital assets go up in value over time as more and more people use them. You know, we don't have to overthink this. You know, more and more people are going to be using Bitcoin in the future than they are today. And as more and more people use it, it's going to become more valuable. Okay. And so it may not be 10 million. It could be 20 million or it could be 1 million. I mean, no one really knows 100% for sure, but it's going to be worth more than it is today when you have billions of people using this. And so that, that's the general thesis. You, you buy it as like digital real estate and you hold it for the next 10 or 20 years. And then you open it up and say, you know, how to do. And, you know, and, and, you know I'm pretty confident it's going to be worth more than it is today. Yeah. And so you're right now, you look at it as obviously it's, it's protection. And so there's also the payment method, if you will, I'm using air quotes here, but what other functions are there for crypto, specifically yeah. Bitcoin? Yeah. So let's look at what the Federal Reserve says. So in St. Louis, there's a Federal Reserve Bank. Yep. Back in January of 2018, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis put out a white paper on Bitcoin. And what they said four years ago is that best, you know, Bitcoin's Best use case is as a diversification tool for investment portfolios. And they said that because it's a non-correlated asset. And so I just want to make people, you know, they're hearing me correctly. Yeah. I'm saying it's non-correlated. I'm not saying it's negatively correlated. A negatively correlated asset would be like if the stock market went down, Bitcoin would go up. Okay, that's not, that's, I'm not saying it's negatively correlated. I'm saying it's not correlated. So that means if the stock market goes down, Bitcoin goes up, but sometimes the stock market goes down and Bitcoin goes down too. There's just no rhyme or reason to Bitcoin's movement compared to the stock market. So that makes it non-correlated. And when you add non-correlated assets to a diversified investment portfolio, it increases what's called the Sharpe ratio or the risk adjusted returns on a portfolio. And that's, you know, that's why fiduciaries, asset managers, you know, endowments, foundations, universities, they're all, not all, a lot of them are investing in Bitcoin today because it reduces the risk, it increases the sharp ratio on their investment portfolio. And if you're a fiduciary and, you, you know, the Federal Reserve is telling you that Bitcoin's a non-correlated asset, then you probably should pay attention to that and consider getting off zero. Having a 0% allocation to Bitcoin is the wrong number. It has to be something above zero. And so it's, you know, you and your financial advisor need to figure out, you know, is it 1%, is it 2%, is it 10%? You know, you have to figure out what that number is, but it's definitely not zero. Brian, we spoke, I think January of 2021 was when I caught back up with you. I saw Brian on a I think it was a podcast or a, a uh, interview with Real Vision TV. And so um, we had a discussion in January of 2021. And you said that most financial advisors invest in Bitcoin, that some of the products that, that we can buy at TD Ameritrade, Schwab, Fidelity, one of the custodians, that a lot of financial advisors just couldn't buy those. Do you Has that changed in the past year and a half or so? It's starting to change. So, so more and more financial advisors are you know, allowing their clients to invest in Bitcoin. And the reason the ones that haven't allowed it yet is that they're just, they don't want to get sued, right? So Bitcoin is very volatile. You know, last year it went down 50% twice. Um, it's normal for it to swing 30 to 50% in a short period of time. Well, where can our listeners find more of you, Brian? Um, website, social media, where do, where do you want to send people to? Yeah, um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, um, it's Brian Estes 32 is my Twitter handle. Um, if you want to go to our website, it's off the chain dot capital. Um, and then we have a Bitcoin university on there too. So you'll see a tab on there. It says Bitcoin U. Um, we link a lot of really good resources there. Um, if you want to, you know, help, you know, educate yourself about Bitcoin and why we think this is the, you know, the, it's going to be the next monetary layer of the world. Awesome. Well, we'll put that all in the show notes, Brian. It's been awesome having you. And I know Brad, appreciate the introduction yeah, and thank uh, you the for, education. Uh, thanks for joining uh, us, thank Brian. Thank you for it's having been, me. I appreciate it. 
been very, very helpful, educational. Hopefully our listeners get a lot of uh, value from it. I, I know I certainly did. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you. All right. Enjoy the warm weather. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. The information provided in this communication is for general information only and should not be construed as personal investment, legal, or tax advice. The information has been obtained from sources deemed reliable, but as additional information, guidance from governmental agencies, or new legislation is passed, it could become outdated. Prior to taking any action, please consult your financial advisor, attorney, or tax professional for personalized, updated advice. This recording is in no way a solicitation or offer to sell securities or investment advisory services. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewee and not those of Visionary Wealth Advisors. Participants in the podcast may own, individually, Bitcoin or Bitcoin-related investments. The information or opinions expressed in this podcast alone are not enough to support an investment decision. Please contact your investment advisor for individual investment advice. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Visionary Wealth Advisors is an SEC-registered investment advisor. For information about Visionary's registration status and business operations, please consult the firm's Form ADV disclosure documents. The most recent version is available on the SEC's IAPD website at www.advisorinfo.sec.gov. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm. 